Many of you know this already, but I grew up in a Christian home, and I know that some of you can relate to this too, but uh, we, we used to, I was going to church before I was even born, before I was even out of the womb. My dad have, uh, and my mom have always been faithful attenders and actively involved in the church, and I'm talking Sunday night, Sunday morning, uh, Wednesday night, missions conferences, work, church work days, even special events. If the doors of the church are open, the Kreider church or the Kreider family is going to be there. And if there's one thing that I've noticed in my years of being in church, it is that worship in the American church is a very interesting phenomenon. It's really easy for people, the people of God, to sometimes pretend to be further along than they actually are in their relationship with God. In fact, it is easy to pretend to be somebody that you're not. It is easy to pretend to experience something in worship that you have genuinely not experienced. You know, it's almost hard to believe this, but we are going to be celebrating Thanksgiving this week later on. And and I think about how many of us are going to get together with family or friends and we're going to have a meal together. We're going to watch some football. We're going to play some games. We're going to hang out together. Now, a lot of those times can be great and full of wonderful memories. But there are other times when getting together with your family is a little bit like this picture that we're going to be putting up on the screen here. And you are not looking forward to getting together with your family at all because you know what's about to happen. People yelling at each other, throwing food at each other, the kitchen's on fire, food is falling all over the floor, there is a huge mess. Your Uncle Rick is swinging on the chandelier in the background, Aunt Sandy is crawling underneath the table And some of you can relate to Thanksgiving with your family being like this. This is what it looks like. And you dread the upcoming holidays. Now, this can happen at a family Thanksgiving dinner. And and yet I know that some of you say, well, this is what my morning has been like today. And, And the reason why I know that is because I have a family too. You know what I'm talking about, that you're getting ready for church on a Sunday morning and you feel like you are on the verge of World War III in your family. You're trying to get everyone dressed and fed and your hair done and your shoes tied and people are yelling and the TV's just blaring and on the way to to church there is this confusion of, "Did, did you get the diaper bag? Did you remember the diaper bag? And what about the offering? But it's always, it always seems like there is chaos and confusion and frustration on Sunday morning before church. But then you pull up on the, uh, up to the church and maybe you start walking to church and there's this miracle that takes place. There's this amazing transformation that takes place. All of a sudden, everybody starts acting like the sweetest people who have ever lived. Everyone is lovely. Words become gracious. There are smiles on everyone's faces and you sit down in your normal customary seats. You start raising your hands for worship and you sing to the Lord about how grateful you are that you are his child. When when you're in church at times, you can make people think that everything is perfect in your life. But in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. And this morning, this is what Solomon is going to remind us of, of the importance of approaching worship with an incredible sobriety and incredible seriousness. Now, 
that does not mean that we have to have uh, uh, this straight face and never smile. No, you, you can be lively and enthusiastic and still be serious and sober at the same time. And Solomon would remind us that nowhere is that more important for the follower of the Lord Jesus than when he or she is worshiping the living God. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, or you can open that Bible app, uh, grab a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, but join me, if you will, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Now we're going to be reading the first seven verses of this chapter. And one of the main points here is the very important reminder that just because you assemble with other believers in a worship service does not mean that you're actually worshiping God. You can be here for an hour and 15 minutes and never actually engage with the sovereign living Lord of heaven and earth. Your Bible's open in front of you to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and I want to begin reading in verse 1. You can follow along, and here is what God's Word says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. and Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Well, you can tell that this is a very important passage, that Solomon is being very serious with those who are listening to the sound of his written voice. And it's important not only for for what it teaches us about our worship, but I think that this is important because it reveals to us some things about Solomon as well. I mean, Solomon has had some difficult things to say in the first four chapters of Ecclesiastes. He had challenging things to say. Many people might even say that Solomon had a negative outlook more often than not. But when we read a passage like this... um, It reminds us that Solomon is not an atheist, that he's not some uh, religious cynic just because he has a few questions about life. When when you read this passage, and I I, I don't think that you can have any question in your mind that King Solomon is, in fact, a man of great faith in the living God. This is a man who is very serious about how he approaches God, and he wants his listeners to be serious about how they approach God as well. Basically, Solomon communicates two very important things about worship for the people of God. The first one is this, that Solomon 
would remind us that when it comes to worship, we need to guard our steps as we prepare for it. Guard your steps as you prepare for worship. And that just comes from the first statement that Solomon uh, gives us here in verse 1. It's the primary principle here in this passage. Again, it says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And let me just say that I think that this is a hidden gem in the scriptures. It might not be on anybody's top 10 or even top 20 memorized verses in the Bible, but this is one of the most important commandments that you're going to find. Because what's more important than the worship of the living God? For us here at St. Paul's, we have said that it's the most important thing that we do. And in fact, we, we, we say that we want to exalt Jesus Christ by making disciples who, number one, love Jesus, love God. And the central part of loving him is worshiping him. Solomon says that when it comes to the worship of God, you need to take it very seriously. Guard your steps. <clears throat> People come together uh, to, to, to a gathered worship service like this for all sorts of reasons. Some people, they come with a, a desire to encounter God. Some come because they are eager to encounter their friends or encounter um, other people. Some come because, you know what, this is just part of what our family does. We get, get up and we go to church on Sunday mornings. It's tradition. I knew a couple from years ago when I was living in Indiana as a as a as a college student and going to church there. But I I helped out with this youth group at, at this church, and there was a wife who would come and she would bring her kids, and she was very faithful in church. She was a believer, but her husband, on the other hand, he never came with her. And one day she told me about how her husband used to go to church years ago when he was a kid. Now, this guy was a very smart guy, a very intellectual guy, a very observant guy. And, and so he watched people, and he watched what people were like when they were at church. And then he watched what they were like out in the community, outside of the church. And over time, what he began to notice is that there was a big disconnect between how people lived and talked and acted inside the church, and then how they acted and talked and lived outside the church. And this affected his own relationship with the Lord. In fact, this lady told me that her husband had come to the place in life where he was just convinced that most people uh, come to church um, because it was not fundamentally a place where they would worship, but a place of social connection for them. It was a place where people got together fundamentally to get together. And he came to believe that people primarily got together at church because they were either uh, friends with people that were like them and had common beliefs and common uh, interests or because they were trying to build some kind of business connections with people that would be very profitable for them. But he was convinced that there were very few people who actually were serious about their faith. Maybe some of you know some people like that in your own family or maybe even neighbors of yours. They don't believe that most people in church are really serious about their faith. In fact, some, most people are, are, uh, d really don't want to debate with you about your faith so much as they want to know, is your faith real or not? Is your faith making a difference in your life or not? And so this guy whose kids used to come and attend the youth group that I was involved in, 
and whose wife was really faithful at the church, this guy was convinced that most people were going to church for all sorts of different reasons other than the worship of God. This is a concern, this is a dangerous trap that all of us can fall into. And that's part of what Solomon is talking about when he's trying to uh, address this here. First principle in worship, the worship of God that Solomon gives us is to guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, that word guard there, it's an important word in the Bible. Most of the time when that word guard is used in the Bible, it's used as a noun that it's somebody who is guarding something that uh, it's a person that you're talking about. And, and yet on occasions, this word guard is used as a verb to describe something that we do. That uh, it's um, meaning to watch carefully or to be vigilant or to be diligent. Some of you have served in the military and you might remember that, uh, that, that term guard duty. And when you are on watch, the worst thing that you could possibly do is to fall asleep and to, pay, uh, to, to quit paying attention. In fact, you could get in some real trouble for that. And so in this idea of guarding your steps is the idea of being vigilant. You, you, you see, it, it used in this way in the Bible and Solomon himself, in fact, in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, uh, says that above all else, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the streams of life. The psalmist would tell us to guard our minds or to guard our ways. The Bible uh, says this more than once, that we are to guard our mouths. So guard your heart, guard your mind, guard your ways, guard your mouth. And Solomon here tells us to guard our steps. It's another way of saying that we ought to be careful how we walk, especially when it's worship that we are walking into. In fact, we could translate this phrase, uh, not just guard your steps, but Watch your feet. Watch your feet when you go into the house of God. Or tread carefully. Tread carefully when you go into the house of God. You remember when Moses encountered that obvious presence of God on Sinai with the burning bush. Basically what God tells him to do is, hey listen, you're coming too casually. You need to tread carefully. You need to take your sandals off and you need to bow down low because you are standing on holy ground. Because you are standing on holy ground, you need to tread carefully. Now the question is, well, how do we do that? How do we guard our steps as we approach the house of God? And I want to give you just a couple of suggestions here this morning. Some of you have probably heard me say some of these things already in the past, but I think it's good for us to refresh our memories here in this. The first thing just has to do with being prepared for worship. Being prepared. Because you can't guard your steps as you go into the house of God if you haven't properly prepared long before you get there. Worship is always a spiritual response to God. In fact, Jesus would say that God is spirit and his followers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so because worship is a spiritual response to God, it makes sense that there is a need for proper spiritual preparation as we come into the house of God. I think about what James chapter 4 and verse 8 says, and I think it's a very appropriate reminder that God's voice is only as clear as we are ready to hear it. 
And, and so you're probably not going to hear God's voice if you, you don't show up to church ready and expecting to hear God's voice. James chapter 4, verse 8, it says this, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Now, that's a cause and effect. It's a reminder to us that, that, that if, we draw, if we want God to draw near to us, we first need to draw near to Him. That our drawing near to Him facilitates His drawing near to us. But then, then James goes a little deeper, and he says very directly here, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You read about these actions of drawing near and cleansing yourself and purifying yourself. And these are all things that need to happen before 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Now, we, we try to build time for that in here in the worship service. But you need to do that far before. It, it, it would be better to do it far before you get to the house of God. And the reason why that is appropriate is because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so we need to be clean before we have this corporate encounter with the living God, which I think involves trying to get the distractions out of our way. Families don't need to have World War III on Sunday mornings. There are a lot of things that you can do in order to prepare yourself for Sunday morning that makes Sunday mornings go a lot more smoothly. And so we need to get the necessary distractions out of our way, but it also means that you deal with sin decisively in your life. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. That's Jesus' exaggerated way of making it very, very clear that when it comes to sin, you cannot be full of it and somehow expect that you're going to have this life-changing encounter with God. You have to deal with sin decisively in your life. That's part of the way that you guard your steps when you approach the house of God. There's another thing that's important when it comes to preparing yourself for worship and guarding your steps. And that is that you need to learn to worship God every day of your life. All I'm saying is that private worship matters. What you do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday affects what happens on Sunday. Jesus' primary principle was that we abide in him and he abides in us. And if you make reading your Bible and meditating on it in prayer and communion with God a central part of your life, then corporate worship on a Sunday morning just becomes another integral part of what you're already doing in life. This is how you prepare yourself for Sunday worship. You worship privately well before you worship publicly with the gathered believers. You need to properly prepare yourself in order to meet with God, which is what Solomon is trying to communicate here. I heard a pastor recently say this, and we're going to put it up on the screen, but he said, Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. I love that. Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. In fact, Sunday morning worship is a decision that is made well in advance of Saturday night. The point is that genuine worship always starts well before Sunday. And the people who understand that are those who 
carefully guard their steps as they approach the house of the living God. But then guarding your steps not only means that you are prepared for worship, but that you stay focused in worship, stay focused as you worship. And and this would be a good time for those of you who are dozing off to maybe kind of shake that off and, and, and refocus. But the point is that you need to train yourself to be focused as you worship the living God. Worship requires intentionality. And this is especially true in our day because there are so many things that are pulling us in different directions and it seems like we have shorter and shorter attention spans every day. Back in the 1800s, people would sing all day long and then they could uh, listen to a sermon being preached for like an hour and a half and they didn't even think anything of it. In fact, if I tried to read one of Charles Spurgeon's sermons today, Uh, There's no way that we'd be able to to finish it in 40 minutes. But here's the thing. Today, there are many things that are on people's minds. And so maybe you're thinking about how you need to go to the store and go get some groceries after this. And you know what? Uh, Christmas is coming. And so I got to go to the store and buy a bunch of stuff up because there's not going to be anything left in another week or two. Or, you know what? I need to go watch the football game this afternoon or binge watch Netflix or something like that. And there are so many things that are vying for our attention these days. It is hard enough to get people, even Christian people, to show up to worship, let alone be focused in worship. But what Solomon says here is that we need to draw near and pay attention and focus in our worship. Because if we come to worship, but we are not focused, Solomon calls that the sacrifice of fools. Here's what he says in the second part of verse 1. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Listening to God's word in order to hear it and to put it into practice, Solomon says, is far better than just going through the motions. Because when you just go through the motions, that's hypocritical. So work at trying to stay focused. There are lots of things that you can do in order to try to stay focused in worship. But the first thing just has to do with uh, preparation, and it has to do with getting going to bed at a decent hour on a Saturday. You know, if you go to bed at 2 or 3, or 3 o'clock in the morning because you've been watching TV, I guarantee you that you're going to fall asleep in church because that's just how things work. You're worn out. Second thing that you can do is is that, and, and I'm not trying to, uh, I, I, I want to be careful here. I'm not trying to pick on anyone here. I, I'm, I'm really not, but I, I want to say this because I, I think it's important. The, the second thing is, is that if you're having trouble focusing in a worship service, you're having trouble paying attention, then maybe you need to move a little bit closer to the front. Again, I'm not trying to pick on anyone who might be sitting in the back, but if you're having trouble staying engaged, you'll you'll have less trouble staying engaged if you are in like the spit zone of the pastor right up here in the front. Typically, if you sit closer to the front, you'll have fewer distractions. You'll be able to see better. You'll be much more likely to be involved in what's going on. There are other ways that we can uh, stay focused as well. And one of them is by taking notes. And that's the reason why we have an outline on the back of your bulletin so that you can write some things down so that you can take some notes. 
In fact, what I have found is that I remember things much, much better and, and I'm much more likely to put them into practice if I have learned uh, 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 to write things down because I'm going to remember them much better. And so I, I think that these are some things that we can do, but you make an effort and you're going to find yourself getting so much more out of the time of worship when you are here with the Lord. On the other hand, if you fail to do a lot of these things, you're going to find out that you're just kind of going through the motions, which is the worst thing that you can do. Just going through the motions is something that is addressed all over the Bible, especially by the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, most of the minor or most of the, yeah, most of the minor prophets, they just jump all over this because God, it, 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 because to God, this is something that not only is foolish, but what Solomon calls it is evil because it's hypocritical. And, and, and there are a few things that God hates more than hypocrisy in terms of religious expression. And that's a very good word for us here today because as believers, at times, we tend to focus on the Hebrew 10, Hebrews 10, 25 elements of worship of do not neglect the assembly of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. Well, we tend to focus on the Hebrews 10, 10, 12, 25 aspects, but we forget about the Ecclesiastes 5 aspects of worship, like authenticity and genuineness and approach and attitude. Friends, it is important that we assemble together, but it's also equally important, if not more important, how we assemble together when we assemble together. And an example of this is found in the New Testament, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They did Hebrews 10.25. I mean, they, they didn't neglect the assembly of themselves together in worship. Oh, they showed up, and they showed up right on time, and they were seated in their normal, customary pews. They were in the right place at the right time, but they were struck dead in the house of God. Why? Why is that? Well, they, they failed to guard their steps as they approached the house of the Lord. There is indeed a sacrifice of fools in the presence of the living God. God calls it evil. And it is unacceptable worship that God always takes very seriously. Are you with me so far? Well, it's a heavy word. But it's so important for us to be reminded of this. Guard your steps as you prepare for worship. But then... Finally, Solomon says that we need to remember this, and this is point number two. Guard your mouth as you engage in worship. So guard your steps as you prepare for worship, and guard your mouth as you engage in worship. Sometimes I wonder if it would just be best that apart from the singing and the occasional amens, that we, would, uh, that we didn't say anything else when we came together in worship. That the singing and the praising and the reading of scripture would be all that is needed, that we need to say as we walk into the house of the Lord. I was reading something the other day, and how many of you know someone who just loves to multitask? Maybe it's you. Well, uh, th this article that I was reading the other day said that multitasking is not really a, possible, uh, a thing that's possible. <laughs> the author is going through all these physiological reasons as to why this was true. In fact, he says, 
he, he was saying that it's actually impossible to focus exclusively on two different things at the same time. He said that, that, that you have to leave one thing in order to focus on the other thing, that multitasking is impossible. And I think that this is especially true when it comes to the worship of God. Because one thing that you can't do is run your mouth and listen with your ears at the same time. And, and, and so it is highly unlikely, if not impossible, for us to hear the word of God if we are constantly speaking at the same time. You just can't do it. That's the reason why Solomon says that we need to guard our mouth in worship as well as guarding our steps to worship. Look at verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. That, that, that puts us in our proper place, right? That, that puts us in our proper relationship. That he is sovereign and we are not. And then this from, is Solomon's conclusion here. He says, therefore, let your words be few. Now, a couple of Sundays ago, when, when Solomon was uh, give, giving us a little bit of foreshadowing in this, I said that uh, the more you and I talk, the more likely we are to sin. Listen, nothing is a reflector of your heart more than your words. Basically, you give a picture of your heart every time that you open your mouth and speak to people. In fact, the Bible would say this, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so every time that we open our mouths to speak, we are giving some kind of a reflection of our hearts. And this is important because words matter, especially when they're words that are spoken in the house of God. Which is why Solomon says that when it comes to worship, we are to let our words be few. And this is something that is repeated throughout the Bible and that the wise person thinks before he speaks. So when it comes to the public worship of God, here's kind of the bottom line. If you don't believe the songs that are being sung, or for you, maybe you don't believe the words that are being sung, that you don't believe that they are a proper reflection of your spiritual life, then you're better off not even singing them. If the words that you pray... Uh, to, to use Jesus' terms, are nothing more than meaningless babble. If you're trying to just fill up airspace with your words in, in prayer, then you're better, not, better off not even praying. If the compliments that you give, they're not really from the heart, a heart that's genuine, the Bible calls that flattery, and that, that is sin before a holy God. On the other hand, if there are complaints that you are bringing that aren't biblical and aren't constructive, then they're not helpful and you probably need to keep those things to yourselves. That's not to say that there's no place for criticism or that there's no place for complaints, but you better be very, very careful. Particularly when we gather together for worship, our words, they ought to be encouraging and worshipful and instructive and challenging and uplifting. We are here to bask in the presence of the glory of God so that we might be changed and transformed so that we might be reflectors of him wherever it is that we go. Now Solomon goes on here to say something about making vows. And we don't talk a whole lot about making vows these days, but I think that we still do them. 
We, we may not call them vows, but there are still people who are in the business of trying to cut deals with God. And the fact is that the Bible doesn't uh, that that the Bible uh, doesn't say that we shouldn't make any vows at all to God, but that we just need to be very careful about making vows to God because vows to God can uh, can be a lot like New Year's resolutions. They, we we can intend to keep them, but maybe we we don't end up keeping them, or maybe we don't even intend to keep them, and maybe we're just kind of lying to ourselves about this and lying to the people around us. That, that, that's the problem that uh, Ananias and Sapphira had. They lied to the Lord and they were struck dead because of it. Now, some of you say, well, Pastor Jason, I mean, does that mean that God's going to strike me dead if I break a vow to him? Well, I didn't say that, but I do think that if you make a vow to God and you're not diligent and not sincere about it, that God is going to judge that um, in some way. I, I don't know what that's going to look like for sure. But what I'm saying is that we need to be thoughtful about this. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 say this. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. We've all heard stories, and many of us have probably even experienced this, where in a difficult situation of life, we have tried to make a deal with God. Like, God, if you just get me out of this situation, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And I think that the point here is that we shouldn't be cavalier in the vows that we make. If we make a vow, we should do everything that we can in order to keep it because God knows our hearts. He knows what, whether we really mean it or not. There's a popular book that came out about five or six years ago called Unbroken about Louis Zamperini. And he was a World War II hero. His plane was shot down in a bombing mission. He was captured. He was put into a prisoner of war camp. There's a movie that was made about it, and we actually have a picture from that movie, but Louis Zamperini, in his book, recounts a time when he was beaten as a prisoner of war in this camp, and, and, and he makes this vow to God. Now, he wasn't a Christian at the time, but here's what he said, quote, God, if I survive this ordeal and get back to America alive, I will seek you and serve you. Those were his words. God did. God spared his life, brought him back to America. But while he got back to what he described as a more normal life, he didn't really pay much attention to this vow that he had made at first. He got back to the States. He started living a better life. And this vow was kind of relegated to the back portions of his mind. But then in 1949, he was living in Los Angeles and Somebody invited him to come listen to this young evangelist preach, a guy by the name of Billy Graham. Probably the most famous revival that Billy Graham ever did was in 1949, that, that revival that went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Thousands and thousands of people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, one evening, Louis Zamperini was in the audience. and He heard Billy Graham preaching that you must be born again. And that night he was. He said that as he was listening to Dr. Graham preach, he was reminded of some of the great promises of God 
to him in Jesus Christ and how he had made this promise to God and had conveniently forgot about it. When the invitation was offered, he got up, he walked that aisle, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And up until the day that he died, Louis Zamperini fulfilled that vow. He sought after God and he served God for the rest of his life. This is Solomon's word about worship. It's a good and timely word. Don't be a fool. Approach God seriously and carefully. Guard your steps. Prepare in advance. Focus on truth. Let your words be few. The last thing that he says is probably the most important thing. And it's a good place for us to put a period today. Verse 7 says this. For when dreams increase and words grow many. In other words, you know, when, when we make our worship all about us and not about him, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. And God, give us the wisdom to live our lives and to conduct our worship in a constant fear and respect of a holy and righteous Lord. Let's pray. 